0: God's grace, his mercy, and his peace are yours. Through our Father in heaven and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Through the past couple of weeks, we've been operating with a sermon theme entitled, Asking for a Friend. Questions that may be on people's minds but not always wanting to ask them for fear that maybe it reveals something about them that they don't want to reveal, right? So today, we're going to look at this question, How do we know that God is real? And we'll dig into God's word to see what kind of answers he provides for us. I think it's safe for me to say that nobody wants to doubt. We don't like to answer the, ask the questions, what if? What if God isn't real? What if Jesus didn't pay for all of my sins? And yet, there's probably not too many people sitting here this morning that haven't had those doubts come through their minds and their hearts. And so, at the heart of the question today, how do we know is this is real? We're going to seek God's answers and his strength to help us even when we doubt. Some of you might be familiar with the movie series called God is Not Dead. It came out about, oh, a handful of years ago or so. I think there are now three films in the sequence. And whatever you feel about the movie, it, it's, it, it, it's interesting because it highlights for us why this question, how do we know God is real, is so important. I want to just take you back to the, the, first, uh, the first movie. Uh, the young man is a, is a college student and he gets challenged by his professor to put God on trial in front of the class. And as they have these debates, they go back and forth, each making different points about their side of the argument, their side of the equation, until the final day, the third day, when the young man says to his professor, why do you hate God so much? And when the professor answers, he gives the answer as to why he hates God, the student says, how can you hate something that you don't believe exists? And of course, the class is converted, right? Most of them stand up and believe that the trial has been won by the young college student. If you saw that movie, maybe you felt a little bit like I did after that was all over. I remember asking myself, if only it were that easy, right? If only I could just have one statement that would convince everybody of the truth once and for all. But I'm going to guess that your experience is similar to mine in that it's not that easy. This is a tough question to ask and it's a tough question to answer. There are a couple of reasons for that. And the first reason I'm going to tell you is that the Bible makes zero, absolutely no attempts to prove that God exists. You will not find a passage in the Bible where God says, here's your proof that I exist beyond a shadow of a doubt. The Bible simply assumes that everybody who reads it believes that God exists. So finding a passage that we can point to that says, this is this, this is it, this is the be-all and end-all, this is the one that will end the arguments forever, it's tough to do. Having said that, I think it's important for me to tell you this morning that God hasn't left us without evidence. He hasn't left us without things to ponder from his word points that we can look at that give us answers to this question, how do we know God is real? So that's what we're going to dive into today and I really want to look at three aspects that the Bible shares with us that help us understand that God truly is everything that he says he is. We're going to talk about creation today, we'll talk a little bit about conscience, and then the most important part, we'll talk about Jesus as well. Let's start with the first one, looking at creation. Uh, We read earlier Romans chapter 1. I would like to share just a few of those uh, those verses again with you. As the Apostle Paul is writing Romans chapter 1, he's demonstrating why it is that people can't stand before God and say, but I didn't know. I didn't know about you. Here's what Paul writes, God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. I like the way Paul approaches this passage because the first thing that we have to note as he approaches this passage is that he's honest. He says, these are invisible qualities of God. If you're looking for something that you can touch, if you're looking for a God that you can see and wrap your hands around, that's not what you're going to get. These are invisible qualities of God. And yet, although they're invisible, they're not unnoticeable, are they? The power of God is on full display, Paul says, as you look at the creation of the world. Sunday School just sang it. The mountains are his, the rivers are his, the skies are his handiwork too, right? Think about the beauty of creation. Have you enjoyed a beautiful sunset? A mountain range? The stars in the sky, flowers. We could go on and on, can't we, about the beauty of God's creation? About what he gave us to live in? This beautiful world? And then, what about the order of creation? What about how all of these things seem to work together effortlessly? How is it that the earth can rotate on its axis one time a day and and that creates all of the things that are necessary The gravitational pull, it creates the seasons, it's tides, it's all of the things that just happen without any of us having to think about them. God has created a world full of good order. And then we think about how complex the world is. I think most of you are aware that there's this desire to see if we can somehow send people to Mars to live on the red planet, right? But what they've discovered is it's so difficult because the conditions simply aren't right for life to exist. But here, on earth, the earth that God has placed you and me on, every condition is perfect. Every factor works together so that life can not only survive, but thrive. No wonder the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies the work of his hand. We have to ask ourselves, where? Where did this come from? Who, who put this here? And obviously, the answer is someone greater than ourselves. But let's not stop there. Let's take it one step further. Let's think just for a minute about the human body. Talk about complex. Talk about things working together in harmony. What an amazing body God has given to human beings. All of the systems, the digestive system, the circulatory system, the muscular system, the skeleton, every single one of those works together perfectly to sustain you in the life that God has given you. You want to be amazed? Just take one organ of the human body, be it the heart or the brain or the eyes, the skin. Do a little study on the things that are capable with each one of those organs And you will be able to conclude nothing beyond that's amazing. It's amazing that God created our bodies to do such things. That's why King David said in Psalm 139, I will praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You know the concept of fearfully. This isn't something that makes us afraid or scared, but it's awe. We stand in awe of the wisdom of God and His creation. And we're wonderfully made. We simply have to marvel at the wisdom of God to put all this together and make it work so well. I heard someone explain once how impossible it would be for all of this simply to happen by chance. They gave this illustration. It would be like taking a box of toothpicks, nice and orderly, all straight in the box and dropping a firecracker in that box having the toothpicks all explode and land perfectly in the shape of a bridge. It's not going to happen, is it? When we look at the world around us, when we look at the beauty and and the complexity of our bodies, we have to conclude only one thing. Somebody did this. Somebody is responsible for this and that somebody of course is our creator. So the first thing I want to take you want to take home with you today the first truth today is this the beauty order and complexity of the world point to a creator. I can't see it any more succinctly than Hebrews chapter 3 verse 4 does. There the writer author of the Hebrew letter to the Hebrews says this every house is built by someone but God is the builder of everything. If you walk past a construction site and you you watch as the building goes up, you understand how the building gets built. You watch the builders do their work and you know that with each piece that's put into place, the building gets closer and closer to finished, right? The world is no different. Though God made it with his almighty word, he put everything in place. Somebody had to be behind the creation that we see. Somebody bigger than you and me. That's our creator. Kind of an interesting delve into science this week and I know it's two weeks in a row that I've talked a little bit about science and it's dangerous ground for me to be on because I look out here and most of you know way more about science than I do. But this is an interesting thing that I came across a few years ago. This laminin protein molecule, are you familiar with this? It is the protein molecule that is responsible for the adhesion of cells. Okay, especially in our in- internal organs, it allows cells to hold together. Here's the fascinating thing. If you put this laminin molecule under the microscope, it looks like what is on the board. It's in the shape of a cross. Now I won't use that as proof that there is a creator, right? Because he put this building block, this thing that holds us together and gave it the shape of a cross. But isn't it cool for us as God's people to look at something like that and say, The very symbol of the thing that holds us together spiritually, the cross of Jesus, is the shape of something that holds us together physically. Only our creator could do something like that. So we've talked about creation. Let's talk a little bit about conscience this morning and let's do it on the basis of these words from Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Paul spends the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans demonstrating that every single person falls short of the glory of God. And so he anticipates this question, well, what about people who didn't have the Ten Commandments? What about people who hadn't been given the law on Mount Sinai? What about them? Well, here's what Paul says. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness." It's a lot to unpack in those two short verses. But here's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He's telling us that inside of every single person is what we could call a moral code. Without being taught, there are certain things that people simply know are right and wrong because God has placed it in our hearts. Sometimes termed the natural knowledge of God, it allows us to make judgments on what's right and proper and what isn't. And that's wired into every single person. Do you want proof of this? At least a demonstration that this is real? Take a look at every culture that's ever existed in history and the laws of those cultures. Every single culture understands that it's wrong to kill someone. Every culture understands that it's wrong for me to take something that doesn't belong to me. Every single culture realizes that hurting someone else is not the way that we're supposed to behave, Why? Why does every single culture recognize it? Why are there these absolute ideas, moral ideas? Don't we have to say that somebody greater than us put that into our hearts and into our minds? If there were no truth, then why would we feel guilty about things that we have done wrong? Why would our conscience bear witness that something was wrong? Or, the opposite is true too, that I had done something well. The values that we have, in many cases, those values are a direct result of the fact that God has wired this moral code into us. Just think about how this works. We would say that if somebody sacrificed themselves, if they run into a burning building to save lives, if they dive into frigid waters to save lives, that is universally seen as a heroic act, right? Something that was awesome that somebody did. And yet the opposite is true, too. We can recognize and see what, what kind of things are not according to God's law, are not according to the moral code that people agree to. And when we commit those things, our conscience makes us feel guilty. The Bible does point to God not as only the creator but as the one who gives us this conscience so that we respond to him. That's the second truth I'd like you to take from the sermon this morning. God has given each person a moral code that knows right from wrong. James, in his letter, actually says it this way, anyone who knows the good that he ought to do but doesn't do it, sins. He's talking about how we live according to our conscience, according to that idea of right and wrong. I'm going to guess that most of you sitting here this morning understand how this works better than maybe you even realize. Putting this picture in the category of a picture is worth a thousand or ten thousand words, maybe you can relate to this. The moral outrage that we get to see every single day because we have access to it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? Have you ever seen anybody look at their phone this way Or, or, or maybe you can know that you maybe have a time or two? You read about something somebody says or something he does and how could they? How could they say something like that? How could they do something like that? See, that's moral outrage. That's the part of us that's being affected, that part that thinks there's a right way to do things and there's a wrong way to do things. And that, again, is proof that there is someone greater than us who has set the rules, who has said this is what's good and this is what's wrong. So we have creation and we have conscience. I hope you feel just a little bit empty so far because as great as those two things are to prove that there is a higher power, there is a greater being, they can't tell us who that true God is, can they? Nor can they tell us what he's done for us. And that's why we have to go to the third point yet today. We have to talk about the separator, the thing that makes God real and his promises real It's all found in our Savior, Jesus. Let's take a look at some verses from John chapter 8 read earlier. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And a couple verses later, Jesus says, in your own law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. As we take a look at these verses, it's just good to review who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are that religious group of people, part of the religious ruling class in in Israel. They prided themselves on the fact that they were in the ancestry of Abraham. They were part of his descendants. They prided themselves on their ability to keep the law. And so when it came to Jesus, when it came to needing a Savior from sin, they were in complete denial. So as they looked at Jesus and heard his words, they didn't want to admit that what Jesus was bringing was what they needed. Jesus speaks not just to the Pharisees but to everyone following him when he says this, I am the light of the world. If you're not familiar with these I am statements, there's several of them that appear in the book of John. Jesus calls himself at different times, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. You are the branches. Every single one of those statements of Jesus, those I am statements, was to bring to mind for the people hearing them an Old Testament event that happened in the life of Moses you want to read about this, it's in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is in the wilderness and God appears to him and maybe you remember he appeared to him in a bush that was burning. Not burning up but on fire and when Moses came over to take a look, he asked at one point how the people would know that he, Moses, had the authority to lead them out of Egypt. Here was God's answer. I am who I am. When Jesus called himself, I am, he was saying to the people, I am the one. I am the Messiah who was promised. And here he tells us he's the light of the world, that whoever follows him never walks in darkness, but has the light of life. This also would have brought to mind some Old Testament prophecies. And In Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah writes this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. In Isaiah 60, he says, Arise, shine, your light has come. That picture of light connected to the Messiah, connected to the Savior, runs through the Old Testament. And then in the early portion of John's Gospel, just a few chapters before John 8 that we're reading, John actually says, In Jesus was life, and that life was the light to all people. That's what Jesus came to do. To be a light shining in the darkness. To open our eyes, to see the blessings that God and God alone could bring. Blessings that he brought through our Savior, Jesus. Pharisees didn't like these claims that Jesus was making. They wanted some evidence. They wanted him to prove it. Think that's any different than our time today? Isn't that what people are seeking today? They want proof that God exists. They want us to be able to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is real, that this is God, that we can touch him, put our hands on him, they wanted evidence. Is it fair to say that as we hear those questions from other people, Satan is good at using those things to make us doubt too? That it's easy to wonder, what if? What if the stuff I've learned from very little on isn't the truth? What, what if the Bible is just a bunch of made up of tales? What if God really didn't come to earth in the form of his son Jesus to save me? When those doubts When those questions arise in your mind, I'd like you to think about two things. First thing is this, remember where those doubts come from. Those doubts come from your enemy. They come from Satan. They're placed in you because he would love nothing more than to lead you away from the true God and lead you away from your salvation. And yes, there's a part of us, the sinful nature that still lives inside of each one of us, That is so quick to hang on to those doubts, to let them linger. So what's the answer? The answer is this. Get back to Jesus. Get back to the blessings that you have through the Savior that God sent into this world. It's Jesus who not only proved himself by the miracles that he did, but he proved himself by being willing to go all the way to death. Death on a cross. And yet Jesus' love for you didn't stop there. He left that tomb empty. He is resurrected from the dead. And that's your sure hope and mine of forgiveness of sins and a life that God promises us. Who but God could do the things that Jesus did? Who could raise themselves from the dead? Jesus claimed to be God and he proved it by the things that he accomplished. So Jesus says, I can stand as my own witness. But in case that's not enough for you, then I do have another witness as well, the Father. The Father whose will I've done. The Father who sent me. You see what Jesus is pointing to? He's pointing us back to God's love for us. You want to know if God is real? What kind of God chooses to send his own innocent son to earth so that you and I can be absolved? forgiven. That that guilt that we feel from our conscience every time something is wrong can be completely erased. That's what God did for us in Jesus. When those doubts come up in your head, when that question comes up, how do I know God is real, the best thing we can possibly do is go back to the Word and investigate Jesus all over again. See what our Savior has done for us, what he was willing to take on so that you and I can live with him forever in the joy of heaven. It's the final truth I'd like you to take from the sermon this morning that God's greatest testimony to us is found in the love of our savior Jesus. Jesus himself said in John 15, "Greater love has no one than this, that he give up his life for his friends." Some takeaways from our sermon this morning. First of all, God's creation testifies to his existence. We appreciate his design and the beauty of it. When you see those that mountain range, that sunset, stars in the sky, remember who put it there. Remember, that's, that's your idea of that God is present. Secondly, God wrote natural law in the hearts of all people that all might seek him. Yes, we have to answer to someone. That's what our conscience tells us. But here's the best part. Jesus already gave the answer for us and the forgiveness that we have in him and that's point number three. Jesus is the light of the world and the salvation for our souls. God's proof of his love for you is found in Jesus hanging on that cross. It's found in Jesus leaving a tomb completely empty so that you and I know that we're forgiven and have life with him forever. We understand how trials work, right? You know the more credible a witness, the more weight that their testimony is going to carry, right? And so Jesus points to himself and to his heavenly Father that every matter must be established by two or three witnesses Jesus has them in himself and his father. But you know that Jesus gave us a lot more testimony than that, don't you? Think of the apostles who followed Jesus. The men who wrote down the words of the Bible. It wasn't just their words that they were willing to put down on paper. They were actually willing to suffer. Many of them tragic and martyrs' deaths because they were so convinced by what they had seen. So convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. They were willing to stake their lives on it. Isn't it amazing that those are the words that sit in front of you and me as we look at our Bibles? They're words from people who were there, who saw Jesus with their own eyes, who were willing to give up their lives to follow him, to teach others about him. And those are the words that God uses to convince you of the truth, too. Yes, I can't point to a chapter and verse in that Bible that says, here's how you know God is real, but God can do it all on his own. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 simply says this, Faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. When that question comes up, how do you know God is real? Look at his love for you in Jesus. Look at everything that he's done for you to claim you as his own and know that a place that he is taking you to Heaven is just as real as the God who wants you there. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds. In Christ Jesus, amen.